Tick-tock, tick-tock. The grandfather clock stood against the wall opposite you seems oddly out of place in this office building, itself looking like it belongs in a movie from the 40s. Wooden paneling, a slowly revolving ceiling fan, filing cabinets, and of course doors with glass panes in them, various names written by hand on the glass. There's a slip of paper in your hand, thin and cheap, the number 27 printed on it. 24, a voice calls out. A young woman stands up, gives you a nervous smile, and enters the door. You don't smile back. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Footsteps echo heavily. Stairs are ascended. A voice calls out with poisonous words of assurance. The wind and rain beat against the outside, but inside is only quiet, but for muffled sobs and heavy footsteps. The dinner plates are in the sink, unwashed. The glint of steel and the wet, sickening sound of a sharp knife sliding through flesh, piercing thin skin and drawing blood and viscera as it punches repeatedly and mercilessly leaving more and more holes for precious life to seep out in gouts than torrents of it. Ill intent, fear turned terror turned resolution, a sudden turnabout, surprise, a moment of fear, then nothing. Cold, dark, nothing. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Strings tugging at you from every direction. Voices without shape or sound calling your name over and over. And a pit welling up inside your heart, threatening to swallow you whole. Screams of anguish from the memories of your past mistakes, mingled with bittersweet regret. Choices made, or never made, that will forever haunt you. And nothing but muddled darkness around you. The occasional glint of pale light as if only to torment you and to ensure that your eyes would never adapt to the dark properly. You need to get out. You need to find her. Every moment spent here makes that dreadful pit ever wider, that sinkhole in your soul that consumes all around it. You need to tell her about your job. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Twenty-five. The young woman doesn't leave the room she entered, but another one stands up and walks inside. The door closes, muted voices inside striking up a conversation. You look at the wall and see some kind of framed diploma, written in a language you can't decipher. It's yellowed with age, frayed at the corners. It looks like one of those old parchments you would see in a museum. Two figures walk past you. You jump, caught by surprise and they give you a look and chuckle before they continue, rounding a corner. Too late do you realize why they scared you, and that chill runs down your spine. They had no footsteps. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. You're driving home from work, for the last time. Downsizing, they called it, but you know they were excited about getting rid of you. You never were good at the small talk, and your sales were consistently below average. You spent your lunch hours alone and took coffee at the desk. Nobody liked you, <laughs> and why would they? Not even your wife likes you. 
Sometimes you wondered if your kids only put up with you because they don't want to hurt your feelings. You've been drinking. A lot. Anger is boiling inside of you. A pit of darkness threatening to swallow you whole, growing with every passing moment as you have trouble focusing on the road ahead. Tick. Talk. Tick. Talk. The sudden tearing sound of a thin sheet of fabric being cut open, and you instinctively cover your eyes with the back of your hand. You let out a mewling noise like a newborn babe, and a shivering cold thrums through you like a beat of a heart. You are freezing, pale and cold, and as your eyes get used to the light, you move a hand to feel your chest and stomach. There are no holes, no cuts or scrapes. You are whole, yet you feel like a carbon copy of a carbon copy. You don't feel whole. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. 26. The child slides off his seat and tiptoes towards the door, eyes hollow and red, as if he has been crying this whole time. His face is at a strange angle, and only as he disappears into the room do you realize why. The bruises around his neck, the slight wobble as he walks. Horrified, you bury your face in your hands as you expect a wave of nausea to rise, anger and shock and terror. But you feel nothing. Only the ghost of emotions that you ought to feel. It scares you more than the sight of the child's broken neck does, and slowly you begin the motion of sobbing. In a strange sense, it gives you some relief. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Dinner is tense. Few words exchanged. Food is cold. You have been out drinking after all and she won't let you hear the end of it. Eventually you zone out, unable to pay any more attention to all the things she's saying. You haven't told her you've been fired. You haven't told her about how you had a meltdown at the office, how you punched your supervisor, how they were threatening legal actions. You haven't told her that you were late with rent, or how the car had been making that weird coughing noise for the last week or so, each time taking longer and longer to get running. You haven't told her how angry you are. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. We're reapers, they tell you, as if that explains everything. You blink at them, dumbfounded, and they laugh before pulling you out of what they called your call. We're here to save you. We're good Samaritans. More laughter. Then a document is pushed to your face, together with a goose feather pen dipped in ink. Just a bit of formality. You sign immediately. Maybe they can help you make sense of all this. Tick, talk, tick, talk. 27. Getting up, you walk over to the door and open it. The office inside is surprisingly normal but the fact that you can't see any of the others who came in before you puts you on edge. Adam Cowell? The woman sitting at the desk asks matter-of-factly, a Newton's cradle on top of the desk the only thing between you. One of the spheres is hovering on the side, unmoving. Yes? Your contract has been entrusted to us for a rather significant sum of money. Oh. Tell me, Mr. Cowell. 
Do you know anything about sales? Tick-tock. Tick-tock. You are dead. You are a ghost. This is the simple premise of Wraith the Oblivion, but there is, of course, more to it. The vast majority of mortals who die do not become ghosts, or wraiths as they are more commonly known. Indeed, they pass on to whatever else that comes afterwards without much fuss. You, however, did not. Whether it is because of perceived wrongs, regrets over poor decisions, or even a burning desire to protect what was once yours, you have refused to move on, kicking and screaming and stuck inside of a pale shadow of the real world, the underworld, bound to the skinlands by these so-called fetters. Oblivion calls for you constantly, demanding for you to surrender to the seducing poison of your darkest passions, and those around you scoff at the notion of passing on peacefully through transcendence, instead shackled to their ghostly existence by a fear of losing even these last shreds of meaning for something unknown. They have built an empire for themselves, all upon the backs of those less fortunate, and to most wraiths, the realization that they are now cogs in an ever more cruel machinery threatens to drag them even further into despair. In fact, many are, consumed by what is called a shadow, turned into specters who want nothing more than to drag others down into oblivion with them. The shadow is the almost sentient side of each wraith that personify their darkest and most vile sides. The shadow cares only for one thing, and that is oblivion, and while it may seem at times to hold the wraith's interest in mind, it is all for that singular goal of spiraling forever into the endless darkness. Each wraith is reborn into the underworld, usually in the Shadowlands, a reflection of the Skinlands, our own world, inside of a call. A call is a thin membrane that prevents them from escaping, and which dulls the senses and enhances their emotional turmoil. Any wraith stuck too long inside of their call runs a risk of succumbing to their shadow, and thus reapers will often scour the Shadowlands in search of the recently dead in order to cut them out of their calls. Reapers are wraiths who operate either independently or in the employ of the Hierarchy, which is a governmental body of Stygia, the largest organized empire of wraiths said to have been founded by Charon, the ferryman himself. They tend to do so for a wide variety of reasons, but few are the reapers who do it out of the good of their heart. Each wraith carries a value to the undead society, even if that value boils down to material for the soulforge. Indeed, the realm of the dead has a vast shortage of material. Very few items ever make their way across the shroud, the veil that separates the skinlands and the shadowlands, and thus wraiths are forced to resort to something called soul forging to make anything from furniture to coins or weapons. Soul forging is the act of forcibly rendering a wraith's body into its basic components, a kind of ectoplasm, and then using that as material to construct anything from a sword to a couch. This act is most often done to drones, the simplest form of ghosts that seemingly have no consciousness, but it can also be done to wraiths who may or may not deserve it. Once upon a time, Karan proclaimed that only the wraiths who have done the most horrible of crimes would be punished with this fate, but as Karan has not been seen for many years, his proclamation is often circumvented or outright ignored. Soul forging is supposed to destroy the consciousness of the wraith, 
but as soul-forged items tend to still occasionally moan and cry from time to time, no one is quite sure if this is true. The hierarchy has eight massive legions of the dead under its command, and who compose the main military and civil servant body of Stygia. These legions operate more or less autonomously, and the vast majority of wraiths find their employment with them. They recruit based on the cause of death, and as a vast number of wraiths never move on, their numbers are great indeed, containing anything from Roman legionnaires to trench soldiers of the First World War. Opposing the hierarchy are the heretics and the renegades. Heretics tend to be grouped around particular convictions, often religious ones, and they often argue heatedly against Stygia's seeming stagnation and decay, urging their fellow wraiths to strive for transcendence instead. Renegades, on the other hand, simply don't like the bureaucratic nightmare that is the hierarchy, either actively working against it or avoiding its influence as much as possible. The guilds, finally, are supposedly banned by Karen's decree, yet are still around as they are the masters of manipulating the Arcanoi, the arts of the dead, which include both influencing the skin world to various degrees and purposes, as well as remolding the corpus or body of a wraith, often for a hefty sum. There are more realms in the underworld than Stygia and the Shadowlands, of course, but few wraiths there stray too far from its safety, as the specters who haunt the lands and the tempestuous sea of the underworld are a constant reminder of how close each wraith is to falling victim to their own shadow. With Karan missing, and the hierarchy allowing for more and more callous cruelty and exploitation of the newly dead for each year, the society of the dead seems to be on the brink of open war. Slavery, poverty, and loss of hope awaits every enfant who crawls out of their call, but can they overcome it? Can they eke out a living for themselves in this nightmare, or will they succumb to the temptation of the labyrinth and the oblivion below it? The grandchilder of Cain wait patiently for the time of judgment to arise. Bambi Parsons, a leader with an unbreakable will, Procyon, who has shed his weaknesses and has been reborn as a god amongst Cain's angels, and Dugal, whose thirst for blood is matched only by his strength of will and purpose in his mission. Their childer, the Methuselah, control our every move through their timeless jihad. They are her satanic majesty Dani, whose mere presence chills the heart. Maximilian S. Hardcastle, a tutor and master of the Jihad, Socrates Johnson, a masterful craftsman of stories, Lauren Eason, a trustworthy ally and friend, and Alexander Kanehurst, inquisitive explorer of the World of Darkness. They are joined by Snow, who oversees the progress of the Council patiently from the shadows. On the Council of the Primogen are seated Edward Reed, Colin Gifford, Zero Six, Ian Nichols, the Black Friar, Brandon Hunter Hayden, the Autumn Alchemist, and Michelle Light, wise leaders and of good judgment. This week the Council would wish to welcome the Elder Quinn Sullivan to our fold, and we deeply appreciate your support and wise counsel. We would also wish to thank the Ancilla Yodan, who has remained a staunch supporter through times of peace and times of trouble. Naturally, all our Elders, Ancilla and Neonates receive our gratitude from the bottoms of our hearts. Without your support, this would not be possible. And thank you for watching. The great maelstrom threatens all that you have left. Will you despair at its inevitability, or will you stand defiant against it? <laughs>